0: Father, we come to you right now as we get ready to open your word, and we ask that you would um, speak to us through it, Lord, and your spirit who inspired the word to be written, I pray that uh, he would give us eyes to see it and give us the ears to hear it. And uh, Father, as we come to your word, it's um, some some hard words from your son today, um, words that are some of the harshest that he would speak throughout uh, all of Scripture. And depending on what's going on in our lives, uh, Lord, these words could be directed at us. And so I just pray that we would not let it go in one ear and out the other, that we would not be like a, a man who would look in a mirror and see changes that need to be made and walk away without making them, but that uh, we would be really slow lord uh to speak and quick to listen this morning and that we would really heed what you say in your bible so we turn to you now and we ask that you bless this time in jesus name amen you may not expect to hear harsh words come out of jesus's mouth after all he's jesus he's the one that says let the little children come to me If they were to come out of his mouth, who would you expect them to direct them to? Would you expect that he would direct them at prostitutes? I mean, after all, these are people who have made a full-time job of sexual immorality. Would you expect that his harshest words would be directed at political zealots who have traded in the worship of God for a a political passion where they just want to see Rome uh, overthrown would you expect that he would take his harshest words and direct them at tax collectors who worked for the Romans and ripped off his own, uh, their own people and would line their pockets with the money like some sort of first century mafia thugs? You would think that those are the people that Jesus would direct his harshest words at. Well, we do hear harsh words from Jesus this morning. They're not like the harsh words you and I speak, because when you and I speak harsh words, a lot of times it's out of bitterness, it's out of frustration, it is out of losing our patience, it is out of anger. We say them thoughtlessly in the heat of the moment. Jesus's words are calculated. They are holy and righteous. They are born out of a holy and righteous anger. And they're not aimed at prostitutes, they're not aimed at tax collectors, they're not aimed at political zealots. His harshest words. He reserves for religious hypocrites that are his contemporaries. The Oxford Dictionary describes a hypocrite as somebody who would say, I've got moral standards. They claim to have moral standards, but they do not conform their behavior to those standards. So in other words, they say one thing, but they do another thing. And Jesus just has absolutely no time for it which should make all of our ears perk up. If there's anything Jesus has no time for, then we shouldn't want it in our lives. We should want nothing to do with hypocrisy. And yet in a room this big, I would roll the dice and guess that some of us might be playing that game and we might be engaging in it. You'll hear people say all the time, the church is filled with hypocrites some people use that as their excuse for not going to church. Well, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And I've even heard some Christians try to kind of turn that on its head and say, well, yeah, you're right, it is full of hypocrites. But I'll defend the church and say, I don't think the church is made up of a bunch of hypocrites. A, a hypocrite is someone who says there's something that they are not. They, they purposely misrepresent themselves. I don't think the church is made up of a bunch of people like that. It is made up of a bunch of sinners Sinners who have repented but are still being sanctified, sinners that are a work in progress as the Spirit of God is progressively separating them from the sins of their flesh, but a Christian that knows their Bible is honest about that, that doesn't make them a hypocrite. To live the Christian life, to fight the good fight with sin, to be honest about it as it happens, that's not hypocrisy. But just because the church isn't filled with hypocrites doesn't mean we don't have some. People who are not fighting the good fight with sin. They're just living in it. They're wallowing in it. And yet, they keep wearing the Christian t-shirt. They keep the fish on the car. You know what I'm talking about? Keep the little fish stuck on the car. They keep up the appearances. But underneath the Christian exterior, there is open rebellion against God. And if that's you this morning, I would suggest you listen as closely as possible to Jesus' words. And if you're not sure if it's you, Jesus is really clear about what a hypocrite is this morning, and he gives us a brutal crash course. So by the end, you will know. This picks right up where David left off last week. Jesus is still on the road toward the cross, and after he gets done issuing grave warnings to those who would seek a sign, he gets a lunch invitation. And so we pick it up in chapter 11, verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well! For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs." For this reason, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. As soon as we get started here in this text, there's already a hint that something is not on the up and up. This Pharisee invites Jesus over for a little lunch. And you go, well, wait a second, just two weeks ago, aren't these the guys that were saying you're partnering up with Satan? You know, so... That tells you right off the bat that this lunch invite is, is probably not done with good intentions. It's much more likely the Pharisee wants to catch Jesus in some sort of wrongdoing, so then he can accuse him and discredit him to this large following that he has gained. The appetizers aren't even on the table yet, and already this guy starts judging Jesus in his mind. Jesus comes in, he reclines at table, the Pharisee's upset because Jesus didn't wash before the meal. Now, we're not just talking about matters of hygiene here, okay? Uh, What we're talking about is ceremonial cleanliness. So a little background. The Pharisees believed in something called fencing the law. They would take God's divine law, 613 of them in the Old Testament, and say, we don't want to break any of these laws, so we'll put a fence up around the law. We'll create a law to go around the law, so we won't even get close to breaking God's law. They had a book called the Talmud, and it was the central text for rabbinic law, and was more important to the Pharisees than even the Old Testament law itself. That text of the man-made laws that the rabbis had made up, it had become central to synagogue religion in the first century. The first part of the Talmud is called the Mishnah, and that was a collection of laws handed down orally. Uh, from one generation of teachers to the next, handed down through the rabbis. The Mishnah literally says, tradition is a fence around the law. That is the heart of Pharisee religion right there. So let me just read you what the Mishnah says about hand washing, so you can get an idea of how meticulous it is. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean by the pouring over them of water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then he bethought himself and poured the second water over the hand, his one hand alone is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall to dry it Isn't that how you dry your hands? It remains clean. If you ever see me coming out of the bathroom like this, you know what I'm doing, okay? Just reading that, I feel clean, right? I mean, that's some thorough instructions. This was the sort of stuff in the Pharisaical law. And it's all made up it's all made up by humans. It's not God's law. There is no holy obedience in following those things. It's man-made religious jargon with zero bearing on actual morality. And so it goes for all man-made rules. We may like some of those rules. We may like some of those traditions. They may be helpful to us. Nothing wrong with that. But they have no bearing on actual holiness if they are not thus saith the Lord. If they are not the Bible if they are not chapter and verse but this man is accusing Jesus here of sin when he is astonished that he doesn't wash his hands he's going he's not following the law because in his mind the man-made law is equal with God's law so he sees Jesus not wash his hands and he's like this guy's a sinner he's not fair he's not following the liturgy the the mealtime liturgy of the Pharisees He's not astonished the way you are, like if you see somebody hit a long home run at a baseball game, and you're like, wow, you know, that's not, he's not like, wow, look at this guy. No, it's more like the way you would be astonished if you're like watching cops on TV, you know what I mean? And like something terrible happens, you're like, oh my gosh, like that's the way he's looking at Jesus. He's looking at Jesus like, who is this guy? You know, what, what, what kind of brute doesn't follow the ceremonial law? What kind of rabbi doesn't follow the ceremonial law? Now, did Jesus do this on purpose? Well, I don't think a lot of his life is accidental. So yeah, I think that he absolutely knew. I'm going to just step right over the fence that they have put up around the law. I'm going to step right over this Mishnah law here and spark a duel with this man. He was happy to do it. Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has the, uh, clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Jesus has the cleanest hands and the purest heart of anybody in the history of the earth. He didn't need a man-made ritual to prove that. These men were moral and spiritual disasters, and yet they were the religious voice of Israel. And Jesus has a lot to say about that, and these guys were about to find out. I would say this is one of the most regretful lunch invites that's ever happened. Because as soon as this guy just accuses Jesus in his mind, he doesn't even say anything, Jesus uncorks 15 verses of fire and brimstone on these, on these guys. He only stops to take a breath once, and that's when he gets interrupted by a lawyer. So I want to go through all of it. And I know, I, I see the clock, so when I say this and I've had a 12-minute intro, I know you're going to get nervous. We've got seven trademarks of hypocrisy. We will move through them fairly quickly, particularly toward the end, okay? So don't panic on me, all right? Trademark number one, religious hypocrisy is only focused on external behavior, not internal righteousness. Religious hypocrisy is only focused on external behavior, not internal righteousness Jesus doesn't even wait for this guy to speak he reads his face just starts going in on him he tells him he and his Pharisee friends are like people who clean the outside of a cup the outside of a dish but they leave the inside grimy and nasty their lives are like the cup on the outside they shine they sparkle they look good they look like you could drink out of it but on the inside they are reprehensible to God their hands are nice and clean. They've made sure of that, right? Remember all the stuff about wiping it on the wall and the head and all that? So if clean hands, okay, like hygiene-wise got you into heaven, these guys would be strutting in without question. But their minds are filthy and their hearts are dark and their thoughts are dishonest and shameful. And so in light of this, Jesus looks to them and says that they are foolish ones in verse 40. Now, this is a big deal. This might be the harshest thing that Jesus says in this whole run here in these 15 verses. You don't see Jesus throw the word fool around lightly. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us to be really careful with that word. What Jesus says there is he equates calling somebody a fool without cause to murder at the heart and the thought level. So it's a serious thing to call somebody a fool. You better have a good reason for calling somebody a fool. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Because when we call somebody a fool, it's not that, you're, you know, you're just like, oh, don't be a fool. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, it's not a big deal for us to call someone a fool. And, and even if we did say it in a really ugly way, like, oh, that guy's just such a fool, you're probably taking a shot at their, their intelligence, Right? But that's not what it meant for Jesus. That's not what it meant in the first century uh, culture of Judaism because the word fool in the Old Testament, had a, it, it was very defined. It was a certain type of person, and it spoke to their moral character or their lack thereof. I don't have time this morning to read all the Scriptures from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms about fools, but I, I hope you'll trust me to summarize it. Here's a profile. If you kind of take all those Scriptures and lay them out. Here's a profile of a fool, biblically. A fool has no control over their mouth. They have no control over their lives. They think they're the center of the universe. They think they're always right. They bring shame to their mother and their father. They don't take right and wrong seriously at all. They're gullible. They lie. They slander. They repeat their own mistakes over and over, and everywhere they go, controversy follows them. And I think everybody here thought, I know somebody like that, right? And, and biblically, that is how a fool is defined. And worst of all, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In the Bible, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. We'll see next week, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. Fools have no fear of God. They believe there's no accountability with God. And so Jesus calls them fools. And when he says, you foolish ones, they would have been taken aback. They would have thought, the Pharisees, the religious voice of Israel, the leaders of the synagogues, you're calling us fools? They would have known that he's not just accusing them of hypocrisy. He's saying, you have no fear of God. You have zero reverence for God. And Jesus' argument makes sense. How can you only deal with your external behavior, which fools your neighbors, but not deal with your internal behavior? To do that is to say, I only have to deal with what's on the outside because as long as I fool everybody here, that's all that matters. Right? I don't have to worry about what's inside because there is no accountability with heaven. When you live that way, that's that's really what you're saying. Oh, the only accountability I've got to worry about is just fooling everybody in the earth. I don't have to worry about heaven. God's not going to do anything. And so he calls them fools. Jesus tells them that the God who made the outside also made the inside. Why would he care about only one of them? He made both of them. It's not to say that that God only cares about what's internal and he doesn't care about our external behavior. He cares about both. But the Pharisees act like only one of them matters. So in light of that, Jesus says, you ought to do works that are from your heart, not just from your wallet. Don't just turn your pockets inside out. Turn your heart inside out before the Lord. Because our good works, if they're going to please the Lord, need to come from a heart that truly seeks to please the Lord. If we do that, everything is clean for us. Let's keep going. Verse 42, second trademark. Religious hypocrisy gives attention to the wrong things. Jesus gives three woes to the Pharisees here in verses 42 through 44. The opposite of a blessing from God is a curse from God. It's doom from God. And when you say woe, you are saying doom is coming on you from the Lord. It's how the prophets express an oracle of doom. So, Zephaniah 2, verse 5 Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherithites. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Isaiah, um, Hosea, Ezekiel, all of them expressed doom from God by saying, Woe to you, or woe to a nation, woe to a people. And Revelation, as you read about God's final judgment in Revelation 8 13, Uh, It says, then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. So when the Son of God, when God in the flesh looks at you and pronounces a woe over your life, that's serious stuff. And the Pharisees would have been well aware of the weight of it. He was saying to them, "You, you are children of wrath. His first woe has to do with their knack for being obsessed with the wrong things and ignoring the right things. He says they tithe mint and rue and every herb. In the parallel account in Matthew 23, he says they tithe cumin. Pharisees were vigilant in their giving. God got 10% of everything, even down to the spice rack. They had 10 mint leaves, God's getting one. Now, here's why he went for the spice rack here. That's why he brings it up. Because the Mishnah says you don't have to tithe from the spice rack. Their own man made law said you don't have to tithe from the spice rack, but they did it to show now they're putting up laws around the man made laws, right? He's saying you guys even go further than your own book. But when it comes to those who are truly in need, the poor, the suffering, those being crushed, those being oppressed, Their heart towards those people, it's like Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. Have have they no refuge or resource? Are there not prisons? Are there not workhouses? Remember when he says that to his, his nephew that comes in and to those collecting the money? You see the same attitude in the Pharisees. You see it in John 9. Our kids learned about it at VBS this week. The man is born blind In John 9, Jesus heals them on the Sabbath. They're not concerned about this man who was blind from birth, who now can see. They're just concerned about whether or not Jesus broke the law of the Sabbath. They don't care about the man. So obsessed with obeying God in the little things. But they didn't obey God in the biggest things. In the book of Micah, God is clear about what he requires from us. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They ignored justice, they ignored kindness, therefore they did not walk with God. But they thought they could stand before him and say, look at my spice rack, Lord. Now, you might hear this and think, well, if I give my 10%, doesn't that show that I love God? Right? If, if, if I'm a faithful giver, doesn't that show that God is doing work in me? Well, quite possibly, yes. But the problem here is that again and again, they were trying to offer worship to God, but they had no care for justice. And here's how God responds to that sort of worship in Amos 5. He says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." You can't be cold toward those created in the image of the creator but then turn around and say you love the creator because you tithe your spice rack. God rejects that sort of religion. If you are practicing it, you are offering God a spirituality that he despises. It's not of Christ. Doom is pronounced over it by Christ. Third trademark Religious hypocrisy values worldly reward over heavenly reward. Pharisees loved the seat of honor in the synagogue. They loved being out in the marketplace. Hey, Rabbi, hey, how's it going? They loved that stuff, man. They ate that stuff up. They lived for it. They loved the influence that their religion got them in the world. And and here's the problem with that. My professor at VCU, the only really, I had two sane professors in my time at VCU in that religion department. It was the Wild West otherwise. But one of them, Dr. Jeff South, was the man. And Dr. Jeff South always said to us, you can have your reward in heaven or you can have your reward on earth. Take your choice. They stored up treasure on earth. They didn't care about pleasing God. What they cared about was looking holy enough to keep their place in the system to keep their seat at the synagogue, to keep getting those greetings in the marketplaces. They lived to please men and not the Lord. And so when men were pleased with them, they got their reward. That was their earthly reward, but they had nothing stored up in heaven. Ultimately, this was a pride issue, and religious hypocrisy is filled with pride. It's filled with an immense, uh, an immense sense of the greatness of you. Not the greatness of God, the greatness of you. Your heart becomes swelled up with pride over yourself. So swelled up, you leave no room for the God you claim to serve so carefully. If your religion is a pathway to power and influence, your reward is on the earth. And you may enjoy it now for a brief moment, but you will suffer loss for eternity, separated from the God you disregarded and separated from everything that is good. And we've got to be careful about this. Don't think that this can't go down in the walls of the New Testament church. Do you not think the church is nothing more than a, a social community to some? And their number one desire is to keep influence in that community in order to feed the root of pride in the heart? Absolutely. God forbid we would allow ourselves to be consumed by such a feeble reward while ignoring the eternal reward found in true humble devotion to Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 44 Jesus calls them concealed tombs that people walk over without awareness. In Matthew's account, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, inside, they're full of dead people's bones. Religious hypocrisy disguises what is truly underneath. That's the fourth trademark. It disguises what's truly underneath. According to God's actual law, not man-made law, we're talking about one of the 613 laws actually breathed out by God that's in the Old Testament, graves were ceremonially defiling. They could make you unclean. So in light of that, they were always clearly marked. Otherwise, you know, some poor guy's on his way to temple, he steps over a grave And then he's unclean, and then he goes in and he defiles the temple when he gets there. And so they would always mark the graves. Jesus calls the Pharisees here unmarked graves. It's a real kind of irony, isn't it? They were so concerned about their external religion, but actually they were sources of spiritual defilement for those who came in contact with them because they exposed people to their false teaching. They exposed people to a false approach to a relationship with God. They acted like they could lead people to life with all their rules, but they were like graves filled with dead men's bones. And they polluted and infected anybody who came in contact with them. This is the scary thing about man-made, works-righteousness religion. It looks good on the outside. It disguises what's actually underneath. We might be talking about the Judaism of the Pharisees, about Mormonism, about Hinduism, uh, about New Age spirituality. All of it might look good on the outside. But inside it's rotting, it's a decaying corpse of religion. It will only kill those who invest in it. And I also want to say this about hypocrisy and those who might be openly engaging in it. You come here on Sunday, man, it's rah-rah Jesus, yet not I, but to Christ in me. You might raise your hand, you might do a little sway as you sing, you know what I mean? Really be into it. But you go out the rest of the week, you live however you want to live, there's really no difference between you and your pagan neighbors, your, your atheist neighbors, your agnostic co-workers, I would say to you, for the sake of God's church, please stop. Because your hypocrisy doesn't just impact you. You're disguising what's truly in your heart, but you leave your fingerprints on everybody that you touch. And many of them are lost and they're looking for an excuse to reject Christ. And they're being infected by your hypocrisy. They see your rotting religion and they say, well, that's Christianity. I'm good. I don't want any of it. And then the reputation of God's bride, his church, is infected by your sin. And so for the sake of the church and for the sake of souls and for the sake of God's glory, stop playing that game. Repent, right? That's the right reaction, repent. But if you refuse to do that, then I would say just stop abusing Jesus' name by identifying with it at all. In verse 45, you got one of the silliest sentences ever uttered. There's this lawyer at the lunch party. They were partners of the Pharisees. They were the supposed experts in the Mosaic law as well as the rabbinic law. But after hearing the Pharisees get absolutely eviscerated by Jesus, for some reason this guy decides to speak up. He's like, Jesus, you offend us with these words as well. And Jesus is like, lawyers, you want some too? What to the lawyers? You know what I mean? Like, he just lets them have it. And I feel like as soon as he started talking, this guy probably wished he could have grabbed those words and put them back in his mouth. So three more woes. The first is our fifth trademark of hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy adds to God's law without intention to obey. Talked earlier about how they fenced the law, right? They would make up things like that bit about washing your hands and rubbing it on the wall. They just made stuff up and said that this is law now. And they put it right there on, evil, uh, on, on even uh, playing terms with, with God's actual law. Jesus, when he talks about his invitation to follow him, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't mean following Jesus is easy. But it does mean that in discipleship, he doesn't weigh us down with a bunch of requirements and rules in places where God has left us free. And in that freedom, praise God, there is rest. I had a seminary professor who was a Muslim and he converted as a teenager into being a Christian. And one of the first things he did after he converted is he went to a Denny's and he ate bacon. Because God left him free in that area and he was free in Christ to eat that bacon. And, you know, we kind of laugh, and, but that was a big thing for him. He was free to go and eat this food now. There's rest and freedom. But these guys put in laws, these lawyers, that forbid things like squeezing juice on the Sabbath. You couldn't braid your daughter's hair on the Sabbath. And when Jesus says what's worse is they had no intention of following the actual laws themselves. So they would make everybody else follow the laws, but they didn't try to follow them. It's like the boss who's like, well, guys, we're going to have to work overtime. I'm leaving at 3.30, but I mean, y'all are here till seven. That's what the lawyers were like. Nobody likes a boss like that. They wouldn't even obey the laws they were using to keep people in slaves. Religious hypocrites are masters at self justification. That's why these guys are acting like this. If you were to confront them and say, why don't you follow your own? man-made rules. They would say, well, it's different for me because blank, right? They would seek to justify themselves, and then they would declare themselves righteous by their own made-up code, but everybody else who's not playing by the rules, they're guilty. It's different for them. If this sounds stupid to you, it is, but it's also evil because it overloads people and makes them think that a relationship with God is beyond them because they can't play the game of morality enough to be on the Lord's team. When in reality, they just can't play by the man-made rules that don't matter in the first place. Religious hypocrites put hurdles in between people and God, and it's downright evil. Trademark six, religious hypocrisy rejects God's truth, and it will be held accountable. They could act like they had no accountability with God, but there is accountability with God. You see this in verses forty-seven through fifty-one. If if you go to Jerusalem today, I've never been. I hope to go one day. But if you go to Jerusalem today, outside the city wall, there are still tombs there honoring the Old Testament prophets. In verses forty-seven and forty-eight, Jesus says it's hypocritical for these tombs to be built by the lawyers, because these are the prophets that their fathers rejected and killed. And he's saying to them, if you had the opportunity, you would have killed them too. Because you approve of your father's deeds by continuing to live like them. By continuing to be stiff-necked and reject the prophets. In God's wisdom, he continued to send them prophets. Continued to send them apostles in the early church. They're going to kill them and they're going to persecute them as well. We saw last week how Jesus called the generation of his contemporaries is wicked. And he does it again here. You could argue this is the most wicked generation in the history of the earth. Because they had the Son of God with them there in the flesh, healing the blind, healing the deaf, raising dead men to life, casting out demons, teaching. And yet they rejected Him. And they killed Him. And then the same generation is going to reject the apostles and kill the apostles, 11 out of the 12. And the same generation killed John the Baptist And when he says in verses 50 and 51 that the blood of all the prophets from Abel the first to Zechariah the last will be charged against this generation, he's saying to them, in rejecting the Christ, in rejecting the Messiah who fulfills all of the law and all of the prophets, you are rejecting God's entire prophetic ministry to his people. You are rejecting the whole of the law. Therefore, they are guilty over the blood of every single prophet that has come before Jesus from Abel to Zechariah to John the Baptist and finally to Jesus himself. This is a brutal blow to the lawyers. They're the experts. They're the keepers of the law. And Jesus is saying you were supposed to keep it and instead you killed it. And now you will be held accountable before God's throne. You may not be a a part of this generation 2,000 years ago that walked around and saw Jesus in the flesh. You may not be a lawyer this morning. But if you are a religious hypocrite, understand there is accountability with God. And this is your opportunity to repent. Don't waste this opportunity. You have breath in your lungs. There's hope for your soul. Turn away from From the sort of religion that Jesus is crushing here. Turn to him. Last trademark. Trademark seven. Religious hypocrisy does not help belief but hinders it. We've already touched on this so I won't linger on it. The bottom line is the lawyers, they were the experts in the things of the law. They had the key of knowledge. They should have been helping other people understand the law. Instead, they didn't really understand it themselves and they hindered anybody else who attempted to understand it. And this is what religious hypocrisy does. It doesn't draw people closer to the truth. It distorts the truth. It confuses people. And it ultimately pushes people further away from God. And you're better off getting tossed in a pond with a millstone around your neck than doing that to people. These are harsh words we've heard from the Lord. Brutal metaphors. Heavy descriptions. The question is, are they directed at you this morning? How much Pharisee do we have in us? How much lawyer do we have in us? It's a day for us to look ourselves in the mirror, examine ourselves, and ask whether or not these trademarks of hypocrisy reside in our lives. Chances are, few of us could look at this and say, I I passed the test. I don't have a single one of these seven things in my life. All of us could probably look at these seven things and say, I'm failing on one or two. And in those areas, let us repent. Now, if you heard all seven and you're going, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. me," Then understand that it's time to walk away from that life, to walk away from the damage that that life does to the kingdom of God, to turn away from sin and turn to God in faith, believing that His Son, Jesus Christ, died for your religious hypocrisy, that on the cross, Jesus was treated as if He was the Pharisee as if he was the lawyer, as if he was the religious hypocrite, so that you would not be punished for eternity. And that he rose from the grave to defeat sin and death, to prove he truly was the Son of God, to prove that his sacrifice on your behalf was acceptable to God, and the way you receive the gift of eternal life that he offers through his death and through his resurrection, is to repent and to believe, to confess him as the Lord of your life. Because you don't want to get there on Judgment Day and for Him to look down the table at you and say, Woe to you. Repent and confess now. Let's pray. Father, this is is a heavy message. I don't think it's a hard one to understand. I think that it's pretty simple teaching. But sometimes the simplest truths are the hardest truths. It's weighty. And I think it probably causes all of us to stop on some level and say, man, I've got to make a few changes. We don't want to be in the party of the Pharisees. We don't want to be in the party of fools. We don't want to be foolish ones, Lord. So where there is religious hypocrisy, I pray that your spirit would come and sanctify us and it would be eradicated from our lives, completely removed. But for others here who may be realizing this morning, I don't know Jesus. I'm living my whole life the way these Pharisees were, and I am his enemy right now. I pray that they would take comfort in the fact that your word says that you died for us while we were still sinners. And that there is love for them if they would turn away from their sin come to you in faith. Because even though your harshest words might be re- reserved for religious hypocrites, you receive them when they repent. We look at the life of the Apostle Paul who was, this was him to a T. He was a religious hypocrite. All seven trademarks were in his life. He ended up becoming a hero of the faith. So there's great love you have for religious hypocrites, Lord but let us repent. May this be a day of repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.